and what it means to pray. And we talked about God desires that we pray seriously as we look through uh, Jesus' removing all of the tax collectors from the temple. And it shows that God cares about prayer. He wants people to pray. He is passionate about it. And last week we learned how we are to pray boldly. And as you can see within this passage, we're going to talk today about how we are to pray persistently. Now, when I think of persistence, I think about when I was in college, and, and there was a game that uh, played, and it was about 20 years ago, on the campus, and it was called uh, Assassins. And what it was is that uh, students and faculty could play this game, and what they would do is that you would sign up in the game, and then you would get the name of in their uh, campus mailbox of someone that you were to, in essence, assassinate, and then someone had your name. And if someone were to, they had these Nerf guns, and you could shoot anywhere except to the cafeteria and in the bathrooms. Um, and students couldn't shoot during classes, but professors could. And, and what would happen is, is that it got down to it, you'd, you'd shoot someone, and then they'd give you the name of the person that they had to shoot, and they'd come down to about two people. So for, for about a week on campus, people were paranoid, walking around with these Nerf guns everywhere that they went. And one professor uh, decided that he was going to play. And he was... He, we used to think that he was a part of the CIA before he became a professor because he was just diabolical, really. And, and what he did is he found this girl that he was given the name for, and he went to the academic dean's office, found out her class schedule, showed up at the class door, knocked on the door in the middle of class. The professor came out. He said, uh, is so-and-so in your class? And she, he said, yeah. He goes, can I talk to her for a moment, please? And the girl came out, and he just goes, Boom. <laughs> She shot her just like that. I mean, just like that. And she was just astonished that the professor would do this. Well, one girl ended up getting the professor, and she was equally as diabolical and, and, and persistent as he was. Matter, matter of fact, even more so. Because she found out um, this, and this is way before, I mean, before early, everyone was on the internet and you could look up everything. She found out where he lived. And this is in Chicago, by, by the way. And he lived in Wheaton. And this girl went to his house at 6 a.m., dressed up as if she was a salesman. And so she knocked on the door, and he says, what are you doing? And he's got this screen door. He goes, she's like, well, I, you know, I just want to know, how are your windows, sir? And he's like, are you kidding me? It's 6 a.m. in the morning. What you're doing is illegal. And then he looked behind, and he could see that she had a Nerf gun. So he slammed the door as quickly as he possibly could on this girl. And then he, he realized that the car was still out front, but he had to go to work. So he opened his garage door, ran out, in the, and, and as soon as the garage door opened, he's in the car. She runs underneath the garage door with a gun, this Nerf gun, right, to shoot this professor. And, and he pulled out his gun, and he shot her. Now, if, he, if the if you shoot the person before they shoot you, they have 15 minutes where they have to stay right there and they can't leave. And he laughs at her as he gets in his car and he pulls out of the driveway and he goes to the gas station. He's at the gas station when he sees this car go by that the girl's in and all of her friends. And he's laughing to himself. So he gets into the, the, his car. He, he gets into, behind him in the turning lane, gets out of his car at the stoplight and starts beating on the car and gets back in and laughs at them. And, and, he, and they go through traffic, and he ends up making it to school before she does. And he goes into the, the, uh, the, the parking garage, and he looks at the security guard. He goes, tell me if this car shows up. And if, it is, if this car shows up, call my office immediately. And so he goes into his office. Ten minutes later, he goes, the car's here. So he's, he, he's kind of preparing himself when the phone rings again, and there's no one on the other line. So he knows that this girl now is checking to see if, if he is in his office. So he gets ready to walk to class. He comes out of class, and he's prepared. He's got his gun. And he's walking by, and there's a young man standing by a garbage can, and he smiles at him. And then the professor gets closer, and he says, and the girl comes out of the garbage 
And then he plugs her <laughs> before she can shoot him. And then he walks up to her and he hands her the, the name of the person that he was supposed to assassinate. And she goes, well, I didn't get you. He goes, yeah, but I can tell you're never going to give up. <laughs> you are so persistent, you're going to hold on and you're going to keep going until you get it. And, I, and, and I'm like, I'm sitting there and my, he, the professor is telling us this in class. And I'm like, you should have kept going. <laughs> but he said, because she was so persistent, I just couldn't help it. I knew she wasn't going to quit. And in some ways, that's how God wants us to be in prayer. We're talking about persistence, and God is, is saying that I want you to come to me. I want you to be persistent. I want you to pursue me. I want you to go as far as you can possibly go and not give up in seeking my face. And Jesus illustrates uh, this truth with us in this parable. And this is a phenomenal parable. Jesus starts off in verse 1, and he says, to the effect that that Um, They ought always to pray and not lose heart. See, God is saying to us, I want you to seek me. I want you to pray persistently. I want you to pursue me and not lose heart. Now, what does that mean to pray persistently? Well, there's a few things. First off, it involves crying out to God in prayer. Crying out to God. I mean, that's what this, this widow is doing to this unjust judge. She is crying out to the point where he is wearied. Now, this judge, it says here that he neither, neither feared God nor feared man. Now, to be a judge, you had to have kind of a love for justice and compassion toward people. And he didn't have either. But this woman kept coming again and again. One translation, the NLT says that he says, uh, she's driving me crazy. And it's fascinating, this Greek word. It literally means a black eye. In other words, it's like a boxer. She just keeps punching, and she's not going to let go. She keeps hitting and hitting and hitting and hitting and hitting and coming back over and over and over again. And God is saying to us, this is how he wants us to pursue him. He wants us to come persistently to the point almost where I would think that we're annoying. Now, we're having VBS Sunday here today, and I, and I have four children. I know some of you have, uh, don't have kids. Some have many more kids than that. Now, kids are experts at persistence. They're experts at persistence. Uh, The other day, I was talking to my kids, and I said, if you do this task for me, at the end of the day, we will go get a Slurpee at 7-Eleven. Bad mistake. I shouldn't have said that in the morning, and and I I was meaning to go like around 4 o'clock. I should have said that at 3.59. Because what happens is you tell them earlier in the day, hey, when are we going to get the Slurpee? We're going to get the Slurpee? Hey, Dad, we're going to get the Slurpee? Let's go get the Slurpee. And one time I forgot about it. Well, that was the worst thing in the world. They had other things come up, and they didn't let me forget for days. Hey, when are we going to get a Slurpee, Dad? When are we going to get a Slurpee? Let's go get a Slurpee, Dad. Get a Slurpee, Dad. And we're going to get a Slurpee. And finally I'm like, just get in the car. It's bedtime. I don't care. You know what I mean? Because they, they, they wear us out, right? And, that, and that's in essence what God is saying here. Wear me out. Come back to me again and again and again. I want you to pursue me persistently to the point almost that as we would as humans would think we're annoying but God's not annoyed God wants us to come to him he wants us to cry out to him in prayer why 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 does God want us to pray there's a variety of reasons God wants us to pray because he wants to give us himself now, and it also, prayer is also one of the means by which we get to know who we are. I mean, we get to know who God is, but we also learn about some things God shows us about ourselves that we don't like and we need to change when we're in prayer. I was reading this past week, Tim Keller, who's the pastor of uh, Redeemer 
uh, church in um, Manhattan. He said this about prayer. Prayer is the only entryway into genuine self-knowledge. It's also the main way we experience deep change. The reordering of our loves. Prayer is how God gives us so many of the unimaginable things he has for us. Indeed, prayer makes it safe for God to give us many of the things we most desire. It's the way we know God, the way we finally treat God as God. Prayer is simply the key to everything we need to do and be in life. I love that. Prayer is the way we finally treat God as God. See, God wants us to to know him. And the more that we come to him, the more that we get to know him, we also learn about ourselves in the process. Now, if we're to approach God persistently, then we need to, we, we need to have a few things in mind. First of all, we need to approach and, and begin with humility. Humility. Humility means being aware of who we really are as we come before God as he really is. Humility means being aware of who we really are as we come to God before God as he really is. It means being aware that he is all-powerful, he is distinct, different, holy, powerful, wrathful, loving, good. We have to come humbly before him when we pray. Now, let's go back to verse 1. And he told them a parable to the effect that they they ought always to pray and not lose heart. And he goes into verse 2. In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected men. And there was a widow in this city who kept coming to him saying, Give me justice against my adversary. Now, she doesn't come with flowery words. She doesn't come with a hidden agenda. She comes honestly and and just has, uh, she is being honest before God. See, many of us, when we pray, we're not honest. We can be very disingenuous when we approach God. We think that we have to approach him, and in essence, we have to put on our best face, and we always have to not struggle, and we have to go through these forms. God doesn't want you to do that any more than uh, your close friend wants you just to pretend and put on a face all the time. God wants to know you, and he wants you to know him, and we have to come honestly. As C.S. Lewis said, come to God with what is in you, not what should be in you. Come with what is broken, and you might be struggling right now in a variety of things, but you've not taken it to God. You might be struggling financially right now. You could be struggling in your home. You could be struggling in your marriage or with your children. You could be struggling with your status. Maybe you're single. Maybe you're divorced. Maybe you've gone through a great deal of pain. But God wants you to come to him with that struggle, with whatever it might be. You might be struggling with a certain sin, something that you know that is just, uh, that is, that is with you all the time and it just comes over you like a dark shadow and cloud that won't leave. And God is saying to you, come to me, bring it to me. I want you to come to me honestly with what you're struggling with. This widow came with what her issue was. She wasn't pretending. She wasn't coming uh, with something else to, and then bring the big thing and come with a small thing. She came with what was really hurting and bothering her and draining her soul. Are you going to God that way? Are you trying to hold on and fix it yourself? God is saying, I want you to bring it to me. And all honestly, honestly, I want you to come to me with what you're really dealing with. Now, thirdly, we can see from the text that this widow kept coming. Kept coming. She kept coming so much that she was bothering him. Now, that doesn't happen easily. Look at verse 7. They, they cry out to him 
also day and night. There, it's the understanding of it, prayer is hard work. See, we have this tendency to think if I just pray for it once, I'm, it's either a yes or no, and I'm done. And we don't understand what it means to persevere and persist in prayer, to hold on. Because remember, sometimes God says yes, sometimes he says no, and sometimes he says wait. It's like a stoplight. Green, yes. The yellow is wait, and the, the red is no. But we're to come to him again and again and again. And it says that he's, he's coming, she's coming, kept coming again and again and again, and the elect of God are crying out day and night, day and night, pleading before God. There's a consistency there. There's a pattern there. It goes beyond mere habit. This is someone who has intimate communion with God and is demanding and asking of him. So it is hard work. Billy Graham, the great evangelist, once said that the secret of his evangelistic crusades, uh, they, they asked what the secret was of his evangelistic crusades. He had three answers. Prayer, prayer, and prayer. Because that's true. Because what it does is it puts someone and forces the entire person upon the being of God and asking him to invade our situation, bringing God to bear on our life. It is rebellion against the world's status quo. See, the thing is, is that many of us have given in to the notion that God doesn't want to hear or doesn't want to act, and it seems so different than the world in which we live in because we've begun to believe the lie that the world cannot change. But God's saying, bring me into it. I'll change it. Bring me in. Bring me in. That's why in the book of James, we see that Elijah was a man with a nature just like ours, and he prayed that it wouldn't rain. And it didn't rain for three and a half years. And then he prayed that it would rain, and it did rain. And it's very important in that text, it says, with a nature just like ours. What he's saying there, it's not that they were complete. he was a super spiritual guy, that he was just like you and me. That he was susceptible to all kinds of temptations and struggles, just like you and I are. But God listened to him. Why don't we believe that God will listen to us like he listened to Elijah? Why? God wants to commune. Is is the God that spoke to Elijah, is he different now? Did he change his M.O.? Does he have a new way that he's operating and he changed and updated the operating system and somehow the old one we have is obsolete in how we interact with God? Actually, I think it's not, it's not obsolete as much as that is increased, and we have a greater access now than what was then because of Jesus and what he has done. And we fail to realize that. We fail to understand. I mean, we think that God just wants to answer. We, we want to give him a little request. God wants us to bring the entirety of his person to bear upon all of our humanity, and not just all of our life, but our society as well. We want to say, why is the world in the mess that it's in? In many ways, it's because man has forgot God. Man has cast God aside. And God is saying, invite me in. Pray persistently. Pursue me. Don't lose heart. Don't give up. I'm working, and I'm working, and I want you to pray in that way because I want you to have my heart. I want you to love me as much as I love you and want to give you myself. I want to show my will in your life. And that's hard work. Oswald Chambers once said, people say, pray for the work. The reality is, is prayer is the work. It's very true. See, crying out to God also involves hope. Isn't that what prayer really is? It's hope. It's the hope that God will act. This woman kept coming back. She knew where her hope was in this unjust judge. He was the only one who could truly change the situation. Hope is what drives us. I mean, during this political season, politicians dispense hope like a physician with drugs at a retirement home. But hope is not only good, 
is, excuse me, is only good when it can be realized. See, when hope doesn't meet, meet expectation, then it becomes frustration. But our hope is not in the political process or in a politician, but in the God of the universe, who has promised to answer our prayers when we call to him. But how are we to pray? Let's look back at verse 7 and verse 8. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry out to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Now, notice how God talks about prayer here. The people are calling out to God for what? Justice. Calling out for justice. God cares a great deal about justice, but that's not all that's involved within this prayer. I think many of us pray selfishly and don't think about how to pray the way God desires. See, he wants us to pray, and if we're to pray the way that God wants, then it requires us to center ourselves on God's priorities. See, oftentimes we pray with our own priorities, not God's priorities. And here he's saying, no, this woman is calling out for justice. Not just what she wants, not just the struggles that she has, although God wants that, but he is praying for justice. Now, how do we do that? I mean, what does God give priority to? What makes God happy? He places a priority on his name receiving glory, and he receives glory by us doing what he's made us to do, and that's to love the least. I mean, pray to love the least, to take care of those that are hurting. He wants us to live a life of holiness and turn from sin, to stand up for truth. We need to center ourselves on what God deems to be true and a priority. He wants us to walk with him, to pray when we are suffering, to pray that people might grow in holiness and turn from sin. He wants us to be faithful to him no matter what happens around us, which means that we will suffer. Now, how does suffering and prayer go together? Pretty much hand in hand, because God brings suffering into our lives so that we might pray and seek his face, so God might give us himself. Suffering is one of the means by which God's glory is made known in the world and God is made famous. It's one of the means through which the world sees that Jesus is the Christ, as we read in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 35 through 38. We can see that here. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and in caves in the earth. Perhaps no greater example of this is seen, though, within Revelation chapter 6, verse 9 through 11. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? See, God, see here in this passage, and many scholars believe that the reason that this woman is asking for justice and Jesus is using this as a means of illustration is that these people are going to be living for Christ at the end of time and will be persecuted because of it. And he's saying, in the midst of your persecution and your struggles, I want you to cry out to me persistently in prayer. So that's the point of what he's trying to say and illustrate, but that's not it. I believe that while that might be the overarching purpose, that we still see the priorities of God listed within this passage as we get an idea of what God values as someone is crying out for justice. 
And here we can see that God will vindicate them. And he wants us to realize that we will be vindicated. See, he's talking about the elect. Look at verse 7. And will not God give justice to his elect? It's talking about the people of God, those who have trusted in Christ, who have been born again, regenerated by the Spirit of God, who have believed in who Christ is, and his atoning death on the cross has applied to their life. It's not just about being moral or being good. It's about people who are truly born again by the Spirit of Almighty God. And they are crying out for justice. And God says, and will not give God give justice to his elect who cry out to him day and night. In other words, God wants you as a believer in Christ, if you are suffering for righteousness' sake, he wants you to be vindicated. He wants you to be vindicated. In other words, all of the suffering, all of the the things that you're enduring as you live a life of holiness, of righteousness, as you forsake sin, you're going to to go through some type of persecution. And in this world, that's going to happen. It's happening already. Christians are being, trying to be, I mean, people are trying to use legislation to put Christians to the perimeter. They're using bullying tactics. I mean, things are happening all over the place. And persecution is increasing, not just in the world over, but in the United States of America. And God wants us to understand that we will be vindicated one day for taking a stand for righteousness' sake. He wants to vindicate us. We can also see through this passage that we are to value, and that's where we get back to justice generally, value what he values. And what does that mean? What does God value? Let me tell you, God does not value what our current cultural climate values. He does not value what the world values. What the world deems to be acceptable and right is not what God values. As a matter of fact, if we're to look to the scriptures, we would find that there are There are a great deal of things in our culture that are against God, injustice, racial inequality, abortion, sexual immorality, divorce, violence, child abuse, and the list goes on and on. Drug abuse, drunkenness, Uh, you've got um, immorality on on a level that is unbelievable almost, idolatry, greed, swindling. All of these things are listed as acts of the flesh, and all of us in our heart of hearts are guilty of these things. But Christ came to save us from them. And we have to learn to pray the way God wants us to pray, to pray for the salvation of the lost. He wants us to take care of the widow and the orphan. He wants us to pray for justice for the oppressed. And then there is freedom for the prisoner. He wants us to fight for the unjustly imprisoned and then meet with those and visit those who are in prison. He wants us to give water to the thirsty, food to the hungry, clothing to the naked, housing for the homeless, and give dignity for the disenfranchised. He also wants us to realize that one day victory is coming. Victory is coming. The last verse gives comfort, but it also leads to many questions. Look at, let's look at verse 8 for a moment. I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Now, I'm going to expand on that. Will he find faith on the earth in a moment? But I want us to focus in for a moment. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes. When the Son of Man comes. What he's saying there is that God is coming. And that means victory is coming. As a Christian, when you're praying, understand that God will one day right all wrongs. That one day he will see and evaluate your life. And that victory is coming, that your prayers will be answered. They have been heard. Just as you see those in Revelation crying out, Oh God, when will you respond? Will you respond? And God will respond 
either in time or in eternity, but God will respond. He will bring justice. He will right every wrong. He will wipe away every tear from your eye. He will alleviate every struggle and sickness and every hurt that's ever been afflicted you. God will be there. He will give victory. I don't, I, that, that inspires my heart to know that God is victorious, that it's not develop, dependent upon one political party or another or one candidate winning or another or who gets nominated or this or that. That really is irrelevant at the end of time. I'm not saying that we don't play a part in the political process, but understand that it's a portion. It is not where our faith ultimately lies. And as Christians, I see people getting up in arms because the political process isn't going in the way that many of them want them to do. But that's not where our hope is. Matter of fact, in some ways, I am grateful for that. And, and, and please hear me and understand how I'm using this, is that it's putting us back in dependence upon God and Him alone. It's broken our cultural stronghold. Some have said, enough with the culture wars is what's been going on. And it's because many Christians are frustrated because Christianity had been once a majority, and now it's being a minority, which means that your suffering now is going to increase, and people don't like that. They like to be comfortable. I'm, I'm like you. I don't long to suffer. But we have to understand that is not where our hope lies. It's in Christ and Christ alone. And we're to go on no matter what party goes where, no matter what what Instagram celebrity or politician says or tweets or what's on the news, that's irrelevant because they're not our judge. God is. We're to live our life before the audience of one, God and him alone, and not what other people say about us. That's where we're to follow Jesus. No, no, go with me. I will follow. Don't, the world behind me, the cross before me. That's where our hope lies. It's in Jesus Christ and what he has done. And we're to continue. That, that hasn't changed. That message hasn't changed no matter who gets in office. Because the world is at enmity toward God. It always has been. We have to remember that. that we're to, 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 to realize that victory is coming. Jesus is coming. He's coming back. He came the first time as the suffering servant. He came to identify with us, to walk a mile in our shoes, to experience suffering firsthand, to bear our sins in his body on the tree. Then he was tried in our stead, beaten, bruised, scourged, rejected, and then crucified. He died on the cross, taking the wrath of God that was due us upon himself. He was buried and rose again on the third day to show his victory over sin. He walked, talked, and ate, was seen by 500 at one time after his resurrection, and after 40 days he ascended into heaven where he awaits the day when he will return to set the world straight and set up his kingdom in all of its fullness. Until he comes again, all men have the opportunity of being made right with God, but this time will not always be. He came the first time as the suffering servant, but the second time he will come as the conquering king, coming to judge sin and right all wrongs. Victory is coming. So that's why this passage ends the way it ends with this puzzling question for us because it's saying God is coming but here's the question that God has for us will he find faith on the earth why would this passage conclude that way? I've always struggled with that. I always had a tendency to focus on just the persistent part and persistent prayer and kind of gloss over the will he give justice speedily and will he find faith on the earth and say eh, I'll figure that out one day kind of skipped over it. I like the persistent part and what I'm dealing with in my regular everyday life, but will he find faith on the earth? And that is the bow that puts the whole passage together and that I missed for so long. See, what he's saying there is that if people would really believe what he said and cling to him, that would be 
I mean, God's asking, will there be people, excuse me, that will really believe and cling to him until he comes again? Would there be people that would endure tribulation, that would continue to persist in prayer until he comes again? Do you really believe what God has said in his word and how he has attached himself to the words therein? He has promised to answer our requests. Therefore, we must make sure that we cling to God's promises. We cling to God's promises. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the great 19th century British preacher, said this, There is no need for us to go beating around the bush and not telling the Lord distinctly what it is we crave at his hands. Nor will it be seemly for us to make any attempt to use fine language. But let us, and he goes on, but let us ask God in the simplest and most direct manner for just the things we want. I believe in business prayers. I mean prayers in which you take to God one of the many promises which he has given us in his word and expect it to be fulfilled as certainly as we would look for the money to be given us when we should go to the bank to cash a check. We should not think of going there, lolling over the counter, chartering with the clerks on every conceivable subject except the one thing for which we had gone to the bank and then coming away without the coin we needed. But we should lay before the clerk the promise to pay the bearer a certain sum, tell him in what form we wish to take the amount, count the cash after him, and then go on our way to attend other business. That is just an illustration of the method in which we should draw supplies from the bank of heaven. I hope that inspires you. That inspires me. Matter of fact, is even I was reading this story, and I, um, it reminded me of a thing that happened to me, and some of you uh, are aware of this, but um, several years ago, I was leaving my church in Chicago to go uh, to go to grad school in New England, and uh, didn't make very much money, and I needed some financial help, and I kind of presented that need to the church, and uh, right before we got ready to move in December, I received a check in the mail, and the check was for $1,500, and I was astonished about the amount that I was literally getting ready to walk out the door. And it had no name on it. It was a money order. And I didn't know exactly what to do with it. And I was just thankful that God had supplied our needs. And I went out the door, and, and we were going to visit some family in Florida before we moved uh, across the, the states to uh, Massachusetts. And then when I got back, we got in a hurry because we had to pack rather quickly because we were moving. And in the process, we ended up throwing away the check. I threw away $1,500. That's why I, I tell people now, don't ever hand me paper. I'm not very good at it. But I was, I was frustrated because we moved to New England, and we're trying to find the check then, and we can't find it. We, I thought we had it with us, but it ends up we threw it away. And so I, I needed that money. Uh, we were going to grad school. We only had money to live for a short amount of time, um, and we were living in this rental property for about five months. And, and I'm contacting the church in Chicago, and I'm saying, hey, whoever gave that check, thank you, thank you, thank you. But by the way... <laughs> We lost the check, and can you reissue another one anonymously like you did before? And nothing happened. No results went by, and, and I was really frustrated with myself that I felt like I'd lost, I, I'd lost something, that, a blessing that God had given me. Months went by, and God had supplied our needs, and then uh, actually a few years went by, and I finished up school, and I felt God was leading me to a different school and location, so we moved, got uh, packed up a U-Haul, and moved back actually to Chicagoland to go to school at uh, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in, in Deerfield, Illinois, uh, to do some further education. And I was trying to figure out where to worship, and um, someone from my church in Chicago said, you should go up to this church in, in, um, in Antioch, uh, 
Illinois. There's a church that's up there that you would like. So we went in after a few months and went into the church service. And by this time, I'd, I had no money at all because I had gone back. I was just going to school. I didn't have a job. been looking for one, but no one would hire me. And, and I needed rent badly. Uh, and my rent where we were staying, and it was outrageously high, was $1,450. It was really high. And uh, I remember just crying out to God. And we went to church that Sunday, and we got there. It was 11 o'clock service. We got there late. And it was all a wooden floor, and it was very open. And we sat down, and my daughter, Eliana, had brought her markers with us. And we sat down, and there was a pastoral prayer. And Eliana opened the markers, and you hear, crash! And the entire church turns to look back at me. Normally, I like attention. That moment, I did not like that attention. But there was a man right in front of me. It turned around, and his face looked at me, and and he looked very familiar to me. And uh, after the service, I got in the car, and I looked at my wife, and I said, Honey, there's a guy that I, I... I saw here today, and I don't know his name, but I know I've seen him before. I think I saw him at church in Chicago. And, and that was it. That was the end of the conversation. Well, another week went by, and I had no money, zero money for rent. And this, my, my rent was due on Monday, and here it was uh, Wednesday night, and I'm, I'm the Wednesday before it. I am really freaking out. It's going into December, and um, I get this letter in the mail. And uh, we're getting ready to go look at Christmas lights. And I said, oh, honey, I need to read this letter first. And it says, Dear Travis, in the fall of 2004, I found myself at a church in the inner city of Chicago. And I learned about this pastor, a Moody graduate, I believe, who was going off to seminary to, uh, in New England. And he had a financial shortfall. And uh, God impressed upon my heart very emphatically that I was to give to help meet this need. So I went to a bank in Lakeville, Illinois, and got a money order. He goes, I can't even remember the amount. But while he's in getting the money order, his chest starts to hurt. He starts feeling chest pain. And, and he gets in his car and he realizes he's having a full-blown heart attack. And he looks down to the right in the passenger side and he sees this check and he talks to God and he says, God, I'm going to die today, but you told me to mail this check. What am I supposed to do? And he'd already called 911 and God said to him, mail the check, you're not going to die today. So he mails the check, falls on the ground, is crawling when the ambulance shows up. They take him in the ambulance, take him to the hospital, and they said, you're going to die today. Do you want us to call a priest or something? And he said, no, because uh, they told me he has the widow maker heart attack. And he said, no, God told me I'm not going to die today, uh, but you do whatever you need. I'm going to be okay. They laughed at him, but he goes, so it's two and a half years later. I have half a heart, but God is still using me. I lived. And imagine my surprise when the young pastor that I helped two and a half years ago, I see a far cry from Boston. And once I saw you, God told me to write you this letter. Maybe it helps you. Maybe it doesn't. Sincerely, a brother in Christ. Okay. He had no idea that that money order that he'd given me Two and a half years before, was never cashed. He didn't sign his name. Um, he didn't say anything else, except he included some details. He said, Route 83 in Lakeville, Illinois. I'm desperate by this time. And, by, and we're going out for, to look at the Christmas lights. It was a Wednesday night. And I've been more miserable in my life looking at Christmas lights. Because all I'm thinking of is I lost $1,500. And here's another reminder that I lost $1,500. So my wife's like, oh, look at the pretty lights. I hate lights. Christmas is awful. <laughs> and my kids are like, why is daddy so angry at the world? <laughs> you know? The next morning, I'm having some time with the Lord, and I'm praying. I'm asking God. I said, Lord, I, I need this money to, for rent. I have none. And uh, Lord, what am I supposed to do? And he keeps bringing details to my mind. Route 83, Lake Villa. Route 83, Lake Villa. So I live by Route 83 in Lake Villa at the time. I was living in Grays Lake, northern suburbs. So I walked up to my wife, and I had this letter that this guy had written. And I said, honey, I don't know what else to do, but I'm just going to get in the van. 
and I'm going to drive, I get home and ride 83 and at Lake Villa, and when I see a bank, I'm going to pull over, and I'm going to show them this letter. She goes, okay. So I get in my, my <laughs> Nissan Quest. <laughs> We're driving along, and I, I mean, it's just me. I'm talking to God, and I see the sign for Lake Villa, and I see a building literally behind the sign, and it looks like a bank, so I pull in, and I have this letter. And I walk into the woman, and I said, uh, I received a money, and I tell her the story, a money order uh, two and a half years ago, and it was written to me. I don't know who it's from. Um, I can't remember the exact amount. I only saw it once. I think it was about $1,500, and, and so she hands me off to the senior associate. They pick me to the middle of the bank, and she asked me questions. She goes, well, the, I said, when was this bank built? And she goes, uh, that year, actually. It was built in uh, about the fall of that year, so it may not be our bank. And I said, well, I don't even know if I could cash it. And she goes, a money order is good for six years. I'm like, whoa, okay. There might be hope. I said, I don't have it. And, and I said, I don't know if this is the bank. And I said, how many banks are there on Right 83? And she goes, eight. And this one was uh, built around that time, so it's probably not us. But she goes, well, let me ask you questions. And she started asking question after question after question. And she goes, well, whose name's on the check? Mine is. How much is the amount for it? I'm not exactly sure, but my name's on the check. Who's it from? I have no idea. When'd you give it? Get it. I, I said it was between this month and this month. And she said, well, let me look. Let me look. Let me look. Let me look. And then she goes, oh, my gosh. We have the check. Now, you can't tell me that God doesn't exist. Because God answered, God had supplied my rent two and a half years before. I'd moved across states. I'd gone to different places and encountered all these different things to walk in that church at that moment to have my daughter knock over markers at that moment to have that guy turn around. It turned out that that guy was the guy that had written the check. And God had told him to write me that letter and to include those details in that letter that I would go to that bank and cash that check. Now let me tell you something. That's how it is with the promises of God. We kind of lose track of things, but God will always bring his promise back around, and he will answer it because he's attached himself to it. And no matter how much we feel like we've lost, God's name is attached to it. And it's a promise that he will guarantee, take it to the bank when we hold on to him. And we bring that promise back to him. And he will answer that request time and time and time again. And he will show himself to be faithful even when we are faithless. And I'll tell you, right in the middle of that bank, I started to cry. And I looked at the woman and I said, you can't tell me that God doesn't exist. Because God showed me that he is faithful and that he will answer and he sees our plight and he sees our situation and that he will answer and will respond to it. We are to cling to God's promises He's given us a check with his name written on it. And you can cash it. That's what God is saying. Take me. Here, take it. Take it. Cash it. Here, I'm supplying your need. See, what's great is about prayer is that not only does God, I mean, we are to cling to God's promises, is that God attached them to it, that God would hear us, that God would hear you. This is a widow, by the way, that's coming to the unjust judge. This is not a super spiritual woman. This is not a politician. This is not an alderman or governor or senator or anything else. This is a widow. And in ancient society, a widow was one of the most unprotected people in the world. She had no family. She had no children. She had no one to vouch for her. She could be subject to violence, to be subject to all kinds of different things. She's helpless, in essence. And God is saying, I help the helpless. I will be there for those that feel like they have no hope because I am your hope. God will answer you. He hears 
you. I love how E.M. Bounds, who is a great prayer himself, he says this, prayer is not fitful, short-lived thing. He says, it is no voice crying and heard and unheeded in the silence. It is a voice which goes into God's ear and it lives as long as God's ear is open to holy pleas. As long as God's heart is alive to holy things, God shapes the world by prayer. Prayers are deathless. The lips that utter them may be closed in death. The heart that felt them may have ceased to beat. But the prayers live before God and God's heart is set on them. Prayers outlive the lives of those who uttered them. Outlive a generation. Outlive an age. Outlive a world. God has attached them. God hears your prayers. He hears what you are dealing with. Our prayers go on. God is guaranteed to hear us and he is guaranteed to help us help us. See, God's timetable is not ours. Our prayers go on. God is our ever-present help in time of need, and he is guaranteed to be there for us. He wants us to ask of him. He has stored up in heaven all of the things that we would ever want or need, and he wants us to get, he wants to give them to us, but we need to ask. He wants to help us, and he will help us when we come to him and pray according to his will and his way and in his timing. Lastly, He desires that we hold on till the end. That's where we get into our question. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? God's saying, I want you to persevere. I want you to believe me, and I want you to pray until you cease breathing or until I come again. Either you die or I come again. But I want want to know, is your faith going to be seen in how you live your life? Will I find faith alive in you at the end of time? Will you be persistent? Are you holding on? Are you seeking God persistently? Are you taking advantage of this divine tool of communication that God has given? You know, it's interesting. When the phone was first invented, people didn't really embrace it. Did you know that? Sounds strange. People didn't see a need for it. Letters were sufficient. What changed people's perspective on the telephone was actually World War I. When World War I came out, suddenly people needed to know what was going on. They wanted to be connected to it, and then they took advantage of it, and they saw the need of it. The question that is for us is, do you see the need of prayer, or does God have to make your life in such a way, in order in such a way, that you, don't, that you will see the need of it? It's better to take advantage of that opportunity now, not just as a life preserver, but a means of communing with the creator of the universe. God wants us to hold on to the end. God wants us to persist in prayer, to keep, in essence, pursuing him, no matter what it takes, no matter where it takes us. Are we praying and calling on him until he answers? Are we praying for our unsaved family members? Are we praying for that wayward child? Are we calling on God in the midst of our financial situation? Are we calling on God for deliverance? Are we calling on God to make his kingdom known in this world? Excuse me. If we're not... Why not? Nothing will change. It's not about politicians or society. It's about calling on the name of him who hears. Seek him persistently. Pray persistently, and we will find a God who answers in ways that are beyond our ability to fathom. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, Lord, you have attached yourself to this wonderful communication tool, vehicle of prayer. 
Lord, may we believe the promises there in your word. And Lord, we know that you answer the requests of your children. And Lord, those who are your children are those who have trusted you as Lord and Savior of their life. And if there's someone here today that doesn't yet know who you are, I pray, Lord, that they might embrace you as Savior and Lord. That they might repent of their sins and embrace you and surrender their life, knowing that you paid the price for their sins and that they've you have given us now your life and may they experience the wondrous truth of knowing who you are and lord for those of us who do know you and yet we've become stagnant we've become apathetic lord grab your paddles of grace of your holy spirit and shock us alive that that life might return to us that our hearts might begin to beat truly for you holding on to you believing in you And showing by our lives that you are the Christ. That when you do return, you will find faith alive in us. So glorify your name in our lives. Use us for the glory of your name. Bless us now in Jesus' name. Amen.